Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Aaron McKenna, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oregon. McKenna's recent books include Pets, People, and Pragmatism, Livestock, Food, Fiber, and Friends, and a co-authored volume with colleague Scott Pratt titled American Philosophy from Wounded Knee to the Present. McKenna's research interests include social and political philosophy, environmental and animal ethics, feminist theory, and American pragmatism. Thank you, Erin, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So I always start with the basic question, how did you become a philosopher? Mm -hmm. What led to your interest? And in particular, what led you to become a scholar of animal ethics? So I find this with students today, you don't know that philosophy exists when you head off to college, so I was actually gonna be an English major, um, but then I found myself in a philosophy seminar and I really liked it. By accident, I had completed half the major by the end of my first year, so <laughs> I decided that was gonna be a major. Um, I added philosophy, politics, and economics to that, um, and really once I thought that I loved it, the to go on and teach philosophy made sense to me. I think teaching people how to think critically, especially in a democracy, is very important, so that motivates my work generally. Um, I did take a year to make sure I liked teaching, and then I embarked on graduate study, but I just have an interest in questions of ethics, social political philosophy generally, and then I came to feminism. I found that missing um, as I began my education. Feminist philosophy was starting to really come on strong in the 80s, but was still seen as maybe a side issue in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I was ready to quit my graduate program at one point and then found feminist science fiction mm -hmm. and feminist political theory that led to my dissertation on utopias and my first book on that. And that saved me and kept me interested in the discipline. And so how did you become interested in animal, human-animal relations and animal ethics? So I had actually wanted to stop eating meat as a child and that wasn't allowed by the family, um, but I start, as I started thinking about the position of women in philosophy, I realized that there were a lot of parallels to the position of animals in philosophy, mm. how they were talked about, how women in nature are often connected, um, and then I discovered the field of eco-feminism, which really connects those two very clearly and shows the history of how women in nature are seen as passive, kind of objects to be manipulated, tied to emotions, chaotic, unruly, all the things that are to be controlled by reason. And so in philosophy, women end up on the side of animals and nature, which is the object of philosophy, mm -hmm. not the doers of philosophy. And I started to realize that not just changing the status of women in philosophy, but also animals was gonna be important for the discipline. So what are some of the problems that uh, people who study animal ethics think about? Um, so based often, whether to eat them or not, so that's the first one. Captivity, so zoos, use in research, how they're kept if they're kept on farming. Some people talk about pets, fewer people talk about pets, so it's mostly food, research, zoos, uh, hunting are the main issues. So your first, well, the first book on this material is Pets, People, and Pragmatism. So tell us a little bit about, you just mentioned that typically we're not thinking a lot about pets. I mean, they're with us all the time and we don't really think about them. What, what are the sort of arguments that you make in that book? So I ended up starting with that book. I set off on a sabbatical to write just one book on pragmatism and animals, which would deal with all the standard issues. And then I realized, as a, both as a pragmatist and a feminist, I'm committed to starting with people's experience and where they are, and thought I needed to start with the animals they lived with, and then take them out to animals they might have less direct experience with, that then ballooned so that it couldn't all be in one book. So the pet book came first. 
I think people just assume that they understand the animals that they're with on both sides of the debate. So there's some who want to argue that we shouldn't have any domesticated animals, that domestication is unnatural, and we should eliminate all companion animals and pet ownership of any kind. As a pragmatist, pragmatism comes out, um, develops after Darwin's theory of evolution and, and evolutionary theory generally being taken up. So it doesn't make sense to me to pull humans outside of nature and humans' actions are not unnatural. They may involve technologies, they may involve ethical problems, but just by what they're doing are not unnatural. So domestication might have ethical issues, but it's not unnatural for me. And so I had to look then at what would be the good and bad aspects of domestication, but also realizing that humans are changed by the animals as much as we are changing the animals. Mm -hmm. And so I end up drawing a lot on other disciplines as well to do the work, um, but try and argue that we wouldn't be who we are as humans without our relationships with dogs, especially horses, cats are the three species I look at most in that book. I do talk about some other less common pets. Um, and try and argue that we need to really understand each species, each kind of, especially for those that have been domesticated for a long time, if they're breed variations and then the individuals within those, so that we are actually dealing with that individual animal and not making general statements and claims that don't apply. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets tricky because most people want an answer like, we should ban horse racing. And I want to say, well, no, not necessarily. There's a lot that goes wrong in horse racing, and we shouldn't be racing two-year-old horses when you shouldn't be on their back. But some horses really love to run. Mm -hmm. Some really love to jump. So mm -hmm. banning showing might actually b fail to respect the interests of these animals as they, have, as they exist today. But we have to then look at those industries very carefully for the problems that are going on. But it's easier to sell politically a complete ban mm -hmm or things are fine as they are. And my approach requires actually getting into the specifics and finding out what's happening. Can it be improved for both the human and the animals involved? If there's absolutely no way that it can be improved, then you might have to end an elimination. But it's not as easy as we like to think about some of those issues. So can you say, you know, I have a dog. So what are the kinds of ethical um, questions that I should keep in mind when I'm dealing with my dog? Um, so how much energy does this dog have? How much time is it happy being alone? Mm -hmm. Is your lifestyle suited to that? What diet are you wanting to feed it? We often think we want to feed them much more variety than is good for them. So mm -hmm. we impose our own standard of what would be good. Um, simple things like how warm do I keep my house? Lots of us want to keep our houses very warm. That has environmental implications, but also is often very bad for the animals we live with. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we put on sweaters and turn down the heat, they would be healthier, so it can be simple things like that. Am I going to let them run loose and chase wildlife? Am I going to pick up after them so that they don't spread disease? All those things come in. Am I going to rescue a dog? Am I going to buy from a breeder? So that's another example. Lots of people in these issues want to say all breeding of animals is wrong mm -hmm. um, and only rescue is right, but that may not work if you need an animal or want an animal for specific kinds of tasks or to be, or I have a horse, if, my, if you have a dog that can't be around a horse, that, that dog isn't gonna get to go with me certain places, that then is unfair to the dog. Mm -hmm. If I get a dog that can do that, 
but then what breeders do I go to? So there are going to be some breeders that are responsible and some that aren't, but it, putting all breeders in one category does a disservice to the, their, their ethics as well and how they're changing it. And in fact, what I argue in the book is that breeders, responsible breeders, should be allies with some of the animal rights groups in order to get rid of things like puppy mills and the abuses that go there but they've set themselves up as enemies. And so they spend more time and energy fighting the very people that would be on their side who care and love the dogs that they breed. Yeah, this is one of the pragmatist arguments I know in the book you mentioned, you know, that, that it would be ideal if the PETA activists could get with the Kennel Club of America so they could actually communicate with each other and maybe come out of their absolutist positions. Yeah, pragmatism. That's an ideal world. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, um, Okay, so the most recent book you said you know was going to be one book, and then it turned into two. So tell it us about into three. okay, <laughs> tell us about part two, which is livestock, food, fiber, and friends. So that one follows the same idea that we need to understand the animals and their evolutionary history um, and how they have co-evolved with humans and what those impacts have been in order to develop or regain respectful relationships. I would argue, especially with livestock, in the past we had more respectful relationships. Mm -hmm. That changed with industrial farming in dramatic ways. Um, but there are people countering that. Um, and so I think there are options going forward. So I actually, I end the pet book arguing that even if you yourself don't eat animals, probably the animals you live with do. So there are some vegan foods out there. My dogs eat half vegan, half meat, dry food, but mo most of them don't do well without any right, animal sure. products of any kind so that you're implicated in the livestock industry if you live with other animals. I would argue that we're all implicated in the livestock industry, whether we live with them or not, because their products they're in the products around us. Um, but really, I was hoping to see that people who love their cats and dogs and horses might realize that they have obligations to pigs, poultry, cattle as well. So in that one, I'm looking at environmental impact of raising livestock, the harm and pain and suffering that the livestock might feel, um, both alive and then when they die. And then also just what it means for us to be in relationship with our food. So most people don't want to be in a relationship with their food. They want it to appear packaged these days and not know where it came from. And I think to be a full human, you need to understand both animal and non-animal food products, where they're coming from, what's involved in terms of environmental inputs, human labor, and then animal pain and suffering. So whether it's hunting animals to protect a garden or raising livestock to kill them, we should have that relationship with our food as well. And this is the crucial difference that industrial farming has alienated us from. It used to be that, you know, we, if I wasn't killing it, the, I mean, the, you know, my next door neighbor had the farm and uh, my kids would watch as the animals got slaughtered and that was just part of life. Now with industrial farming, we're we go to the grocery store and we see this thing in plastic and that's our relationship to our food. And the industry doesn't want you to see it. So even if you wanted to become involved in no more, you're not going to get access to it. Part of that, they would argue, is because animal rights people pose a threat to them and break in. But many people like Pollen and others have argued that we should have a transparent food system. And I would agree that if it has to be that secret, there's probably something 
we don't want. And the, there are farmers who are doing things differently. So what I did was interview farmers. Surprisingly, no industrial farmers wanted to interview us, um, though there's one medium-sized egg farm included in the book. But my students and I went out and interviewed farmers who are challenging the industrial system and talked about why they were doing that. So the questions were, how do they view their relationship with nature, animal and non-animal, and how do those views impact how they choose to farm? And that's what we explored with their answers to those kind of metaphysical questions mm -hmm. of what it is to be a human and be in, in relationship with the rest of nature and then produce food for others. So one of the key ideas in, the, in these books is this ethic of respect that you've talked about. So to say, what is the ethic of respect? So that's a hard one. That's where um, I'm drawing on the on the pragmatism uh, in the sense I, I actually draw on Mark Johnson who's a professor here his work on Dewey's ethic and argue that these other animals have desires and interests similar to humans and that we are willing to grant the, the need to respect that in other humans we should grant that to other than human animals as well so they have a desire to live, often a desire to reproduce, to live in ways that they can express their natural tendencies, so have some freedom to move. This is where you need to know about the species. Do they need bedding to make nests? Do they need to dust bathe? How much do they want to walk around during the day? Are they cold? Do they need, sh what kinds of shelter do they need when? And this can't even just be one thing. It depends on the region you're in, mm -hmm. the kind of, so if you have sheep without hair, then you're gonna have to have blankets for them. If you have woolly sheep, you won't. So it's really learning to know the critter you're working with and the region you're working in. And there is lots of people who can help with that. And then basing your husbandry practices on what those animals need and desire. And being willing to adjust, because even if you do that really well, there'll be some outliers, some individuals who don't respond well to what individual you're doing. Individual animals. Individual mm -hmm. animals. So mm -hmm. the ethic of respect, the industrial farm, you don't have individual animals anymore. They can't identify them. They treat them as one group. On a smaller farm, hopefully the individual can also stand out so that you can see that someone is not thriving in the situation that they're in and have relationships with them. So most of the farmers we talk to know their animals individually um, and many of them then feel responsibility to walk them to the slaughter truck. Most of them are using on-site slaughter, not all, um, but if they can, want to be there at the death and see that as part of respecting the animal's mm -hmm. life and death and sacrifice. I would imagine that people that are intimate with livestock are more likely to be able to think about them in ways that grants them a kind of fullness of uh, consciousness, experience, et cetera, than those, I mean, it, obviously, never having intimate relations with a livestock animal makes it a lot easier to eat bacon. This is true. Um, so that's one thing we want to change. I think if you want to eat something, you should know about it <laughs> and what goes into it. So meeting pigs might be an important part. If one chooses, in an ethic of respect, to eat poultry or pigs or cattle, maybe you need to get to know some mm -hmm. and see what their lives are like. Um, and going and seeing young piglets playing in fresh straw when their bedding has been changed and running around in delight and then seeing older pigs out in the mud. So we have pictures in that book. Philosophy books don't usually have pictures, but I insisted that you actually meet some of the animals um, that were in question here. And I think that is important. And so even, even non-pragmatist animal ethics and animal rights people would argue that to be responsible, you need to, to really experience the full range of what's going into your food Otherwise, you're not being thoughtful. So you, you've sp spoken about the sort of differences between um, industrial 
uh, livestock production and organic farmers, small farmers. Um, one of the um, challenges of industrial livestock, obviously, is waste. Mm -hmm. And this has been, you know, this is a place where even if you don't want to look at the animals, if your water is getting contaminated because of runoff, et cetera, um, does, does your philosophical approach have a position on that problem, the sort of intersections between the environmental impacts and the, these kinds of farming practices? Yes, so I take that up in the pig chapter in great detail, but it comes up in all the chapters. What will you do with waste? When it's done on a good scale, the waste can actually then be productive and help the land. And so I actually argue that even vegans should want some amount of small-scale animal agriculture. Otherwise, we rely on petrochemicals for the land. You can compost vegetable waste to a degree, but at some point you need certain inputs for mm -hmm. the soil. Mm -hmm. So if we were doing it in a better way, the animal waste could be used. At this point, it's so much. The volume right. is too much. It, it actually burns the land or spills into the waterways and kills fish mm -hmm. and creates dead zones. So it's the quantity and the concentration of it that becomes the problem, not the, just the fact that it exists. But we actually should be using that productively. But that requires rethinking. And the main thing that has to be rethought is consumption. We can't you can't feed the current appetite for meat with fast food and all our grocery stores and restaurants and wanting to eat meat three times a day with grass-fed animals. That will be very hard to do. Um, so we would have to think about limiting consumption, maybe back to healthier amounts. It doesn't have to be none. Some people may choose none, mm -hmm. but at least to amounts that aren't killing our own bodies because we're eating so much. So I was just, there was just another billboard which I think had a burger with bacon, with cheese, with an egg on it. And just like you're piling every animal product into one and that's how we're consuming them and that has to be rethought. So actually the last chapter in that talks about the need to rethink Think. And if you had respect for the animal, you wouldn't want to consume four different kinds of animal all in one bite. Hmm. Um, you, you also have mentioned a couple of times in passing that, uh, the, you know, the kind of uh, one of the responses that uh, people have to these kinds of problems is say, I'm a vegan. I'm just not going to eat any meat products of any kind. But you also, and I, and my understanding is that you're a vegetarian, right? So, but you also have a kind of pragmatist understanding of those positions. Will you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So that it gets complicated here. It's so I, um, for some, not for all vegetarians and vegans. So this again, I can't make a blanket statement. But for some, it is an attempt to withdraw from any connection with the animals. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make sense to me as a pragmatist or an eco-feminist, because eco-feminists actually take that connection of women in nature and make it into a strength and a positive attribute and say um, that we are in fact connected and this is what can allow respectful relationships to occur. If I just try and pull out, then that is actually a failure of respecting the long-term relationships that have been there. And seems to be, and this gets a little tricky, to be an attempt to escape death itself. Mm -hmm. So there is an apparent fear of one's own death involved in this pulling out that gets complicated. And this is there are two eco-feminists that end up arguing over this for some time. Carol Adams, who says that all feminists should be vegan, and Val Plumwood, who says that that's, that's one option, but really better would be contextual eating. So eating in ways that are ethically responsible where you are and when you are. Um, and I end up siding more with Plumwood in that regard 
because I do think the blanket statement for veganism can end up with unintended consequences. For instance, a lot of the vegan foods have palm oil in them, mm -hmm. and palm oil is horribly destructive of the environment, of people's lives, orangutans mm -hmm. are put in danger by it. So you find yourself inadvertently destroying orangutan habitat, trying to not eat cows and pigs, and that's not a good trade-off, so we have to be more aware of the complex relationships. Now, there can be ways to have a good vegan diet that doesn't fall mm -hmm. into those those traps, but you have to be really thinking and being aware of how these things are interconnected. So it's not so simple to say if everyone did this, it would be better, because in fact, if everyone did that, we could end up with worse environmental situations and more animal suffering pretty quickly. Pragmatism but. sounds hard to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have to think through situations in the context that they are and come to thoughtful answers that you are willing to revise. So pragmatism has several components, one of which is that we are fallible as humans, which means we're going to be mistaken and can almost be guaranteed to be wrong about something in any position that we have. So we have to always be looking to revise. And instead, and it's you get published easier if you have an absolutistic stance that you can say, this is the answer, and if everyone buys into this, life will be better, but it's not that simple. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the research that you did for these two books. Well, how, did you, how did you do it? So the pet book was more a standard philosophy book. I tried to write both books to be accessible to a general audience, though we're not trained to do that. Um, I think I'm getting better with that. So the pet book was mostly research um, going to, to the publications of various organizations. Um, but the livestock book was very different, where we went out and interviewed the farmers, which was actually more fun. I didn't want to write the book. I just wanted to keep interviewing <laughs> farmers. But um, we went out with those two questions I mentioned. How do you view your relationship with nature, animal and non-animal? And how does that impact your farming? But then hours would unfold and email correspondence and just learning about what they were doing. And some had done a lot of research, had their favorite kind of environmental philosophers in mind as they did things. Others had just stumbled into this by accident and were learning as they went. So there was a whole gamut. And the point there was not to come in and say, well, have you read so-and-so, and this will change your way of farming, mm -hmm. but to really hear what they thought was important and enter a conversation. So philosophers are very good at coming up with a theory in an armchair and going out and telling people how they should behave. Um, but I, as a pragmatist and a feminist, I think it's much more important to be in conversation where the philosophy is changed by the experience of the practitioner as much as the practitioner may learn something from the philosophical thinking about what they're doing. So it was really meant to be a two-way street. And I'm very excited several of the farmers have bought the book mm -hmm. and have gotten back to me about how excited they are mm. to, learn, to, to think about what they were doing in light of these people that I was writing about. Right, I read one email that a farmer sent to you, which was, you know, he was grateful to you for uh, giving him the uh, excuse to take a pause from his extremely busy life to remember these. And his comments were extremely sort of self-reflective and, and uh, thoughtful and encouraging. Mm -hmm. But you, but these industrial farmers, they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk to you they guys. They did not want to. We were able. So there was one farm that gives public tours. So we were just able to go into 
the areas on those tours and write about it. But so those farms aren't named. So there are, I think, only in the end two farms that chose not to be named, though. So that was also a give and take. They got to see what we were writing, what context we were putting them in, offer any corrections or additions. Um, I didn't get to say everything I wanted to say about a few, but pretty close. Um, and that's very new for a philosopher to have to get IRB approval right, to do sure. research is yes, not something. IRB approval. Oh my God. I had to learn that from my <laughs> social science colleagues and figure that out. But I thought it's very important to get into the field. Yeah. So um, you you've also written chapters and edited volumes titled "The Philosophy of the X Files: Bruce Springsteen and Philosophy and Jimmy Buffett and Philosophy." So why is scholarly inquiry at the intersection of popular culture and philosophy worth doing? Why do you do that? Why do I do that? Um, two reasons. One is that those volumes have been very male dominated. And so when I get an invitation or see one that I could contribute to, I think it's important to bring a feminist take um, to those. So that's my own commitment. But generally, I think they're important because most people think philosophy doesn't matter to their everyday life. And I disagree. Everyone is doing philosophy every day. They may not understand that they're doing that, and so they're not thinking about it carefully. But if I can hook you on any one thing, I can get you to see that you are actually have philosophical assumptions operating every day with everything that you do, and that spending some time thinking about a few of those every now and then is worthwhile. But <laughs> that's why I'm a philosophy professor, so that um, makes sense. So you're a philosophy professor. Um, Tell, about, tell us about a class that you're, you've recently taught or are teaching now. Uh, the one coming up that's exciting is the food ethics class here. So this will be the third time, I think, here at the UVA when I got here as I came as a visitor and then they kept me on, but they had me create the class right away. And um, I get to explore a variety of issues about our food production systems and what's going on with animals. So the livestock issues can come up, but even local food, fair trade. So we get, and the, the livestock book gets into this as well, the human costs in our current food systems is very high as well. So the humans are treated in much the same way as the animals are treated. And so again, if you don't care about the animals, but you care about humans, you might care about changing some of these systems. So I'm able to get students to see that. This winter, um, we're part of the Sustainability Fellowship and we'll be doing experiential learning. So each student will be out doing something related to food in the community or on campus and bringing that back to the classroom to use the text to reflect on very practical issues right here in the community. Can you give us an example of one of the things that a student might do? Um, so one, they're doing an inventory of food needs by, on, for students on campus. Mm -hmm. So they could be involved in gathering that information. Another is canvassing about um, the plight of bees and other pollinators mm -hmm. and the use of antibiotics in factory farms. So they'll be looking at that. Um, and another option is to work on one of the gardens for food for Lane County and find out how they grow food, why they grow food, how they serve the community. So we've got about a minute left. This is my last question. What are you working on now? So the next, the trilogy became a trilogy. So the next one was to be on free living animals. And so chimpanzees, oh. gorillas, orangutans, elephants, that kind of thing. And so that is in the works, but I've also gotten a short-term contract to write one book that brings all the animal interests together. So Naomi Zak um, is editor of a series. She's another colleague here. And so I have a book that is due in 18 months that does all of that using literature, children's literature and young adult literature as the tie for each chapter. So mm. that will be a standalone that tries to bring it all into the one book I said couldn't be written as one book. So now I'm facing in 18 months. In 18 months. Well. <laughs> 
<laughs> Very good luck for you with that one. I want to thank, uh, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's fun. I've been speaking with Aaron McKenna, professor of philosophy at the University of Oregon. Thanks again. Thanks for watching.